0: And um, um, if you are if you're here today and and you don't have a Bible and you'd like one so you can follow along just uh, raise your hand we'll make sure that an usher gets them to you anyone here need a Bible that doesn't have one All right just make sure you or you can walk to the back and get one love to do that so let's stand we'll turn to um, to Ephesians chapter four and we're going to read verses 17 through 24 Ephesians 4. assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Lord, we are thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the privilege of opening up uh, your revealed word, Lord, so that we can understand what is uh, what you have revealed, Lord, about yourself and about um, your purposes in this world, and Lord what you 've revealed about us and our need of a Savior and our, our need for uh, uh, for humility and repentance lord and and the the, the sacrifice that was paid um, by your Son Jesus Christ for us Lord, and, and help us as we As we open up your word today to grasp, Lord, those realities, that those would be foundational to our our time of of heart penetration, and Lord, that you would simply use me as your vehicle, as your mouthpiece, for you to be revealed and understood, and and, uh, Lord, to be glorified. So we ask this now in your precious holy name, amen. Um, If you are here visiting with us, you haven't been with us maybe for a while, we are going through this book of Ephesians. And so I say that because, um, you know, you always wonder why, you know, why this passage of scripture? I didn't wake up sometime this week and say, okay, this is going to be it. Um, This happens to be the next paragraph in this letter to the Ephesian church. And each paragraph, each section is um, strategic, it's important to the writer. And uh, so I just want to make sure that we are aware of uh, what we're doing and we've Gone through the first half of Ephesians, chapter one through three, which are we might want to call it more theological in nature, where Paul lays down who we are in Christ. And then typically the you say the last four chapters um, are the, the practical side, the, the outworkings of if this is who you are, then this is what it means to live like a child of God, someone who is a follower of Christ. So with that backdrop, I want I want to take us back to 1762, and uh, I realize it's a long ways back and it's a time maybe that you think is unrelated to where you are, but there's actually a pretty well-known journal that was written during that time called, called Boswell's London Journal. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it, but if you were in England, it may be something that you would pick up on. James Boswell, at age 22 in 1762, left the city of Edinburgh in Scotland for London, England. And his famous journal is an intimate account of his encounters both with the high life as well as the low life um, on that journey. He, he takes you to, to, to parks that he, he's walking through as he's describing them. Um, he takes you to the theater. Um, he takes you to a public hanging, uh, tells you of various accounts with a variety of people. Um, especially many important people of that day that he was able to have tea with, right? Got to do that if you're from England. Um, But as you read this journal, the reader is going to come to realize that this young man, James Boswell, is a very promiscuous young man. In fact, um, week after week, we find in this journal that he he is going out seeking prostitutes to suit his needs. But we also see that he was a very religious, church-going attender. I'm going to read a few of his entries here. December 5th, 1762. I went to St. George's church where I heard a good sermon on the prophets testifying of Christ. I was upon honor, much disposed to be a Christian. In other words, I was, I was really, really being squeezed in, in what it means to be a Christian. Yet I was rather cold in my devotion, the Duchess of Grafton attracted my eyes rather too much. So the sermon moved him to contemplate his relationship with God, but it was drowned out by his wandering eyes during the service. March 20th, I was at St. Clement's Church, where, uh, which gave me... Very devout ideas. Again, he was moved by what he heard and there was some kind of an experiential thing that was going on there. November 28th, I went to St. James Church and heard service and a good sermon on by what means shall a young man learn to order his ways, which is Psalm 119, verse 9, in which the advantages of early piety were displayed. What a curious, and I'm just reading what he put here, right? What a curious, inconsistent thing is the mind of man. In the midst of divine service, I was laying plans for having women, and yet I had the most sincere feelings of religion. I imagine that my want of belief in the occasion of this so that I can have all the feelings, I would try to make out a little consistency this way. I have a warm heart And a vivacious fancy, I am therefore given to love and also to piety or gratitude to God and to the most brilliant and showy method of public worship. Now, I realize this little old English kind of language there, here's basically what he's saying. You know, I love my sexual sin and I love to do what I want to do. But I also really enjoy going to church I enjoy the service, I enjoy all the worship that's there, and I enjoy the sermons. They really move me. Now, friends, this is the ultimate picture of the disconnect between belief and behavior. And what we find recorded in this journal is no different than what we could record in journals today where many within the Christian culture think nothing about living promiscuous lives during the week, but walking into a church service enjoying the incredible worship, being moved by a sermon that touches them emotionally, while at the same time listening and planning their next sinful endeavor. Now, it's important that we remember, as we look at this this passage in Ephesians, that Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, and in Ephesus was a temple, a temple dedicated to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, also known as the Temple of Diana. It was a hotbed, then, of this this worship of Diana, and she was a... um, she was a fertility god. And so, in the context of worship of Diana, there were temple prostitutes. And when there were rituals, they were very sensual kind of rituals that were taking place. And so, here are these followers of Christ that have been called out of that kind of lifestyle and now are being challenged and encouraged to be different than the world around them. Look at chapter 2 in your Bibles in verse 10. Here's one of the things that the Apostle Paul says about those who are his children. Chapter 2, verse 10 for we are his what? His workmanship. uh, He's the one that's been crafting us before the foundation of the world. He's planned it. He has created us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are his workmanship created in Jesus to live our lives worthy of our calling, to walk in a way that reflects our new position that is we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And that's chapter 1, verse 3. So now as we come to our passage today, we'll notice that our our text is divided into two sections. Verses 17 through 19 and verses 20 through 24. And each of those sections are one long sentence. And they're one long sentence that are really set in opposition to each other. Okay? So what we see here is a comparison of two kinds of living. A living that is driven by a feudal mind... You might want to call that living like sinners. Or a living that is driven by a renewed mind. Okay, A living that is driven by a renewed man. Or you might want to say living like saints. Now you might say to yourself, why is Paul bringing this up now? Hasn't he already kind of revealed the nature of man in this letter? And the answer to that question is, Yes, he has. Chapter 2, you have two different accounts. One more individual, one corporate. You are his workmanship is the result of the individual side of things because in that section, you're dead, and he then breathes life into you, right? Chapter 2, verse 4. And as a result of that, we are his workmanship. And then later in chapter 2, there's another kind of illustration. We are alienated. We're enemies, But God reconciles us to himself through his son and produces then in those of us who are his children this new man called the church. So we are his workmanship and we are his church. Now as we just reflect over this passage again, I want you to notice the comparisons. Let me read it again and just think about the ways in which these kind of compare. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Just, just think about these comparisons. There's the, in the first section, there's the, the they. In the second section, there's the you. All right, we're talking about them, the Gentiles, talking about you, the believers. The idea of the Gentiles is there is anyone who's not a believer, okay? Not necessarily just the Greeks. Then there's the futility, and then there's the truth. There's the the darkened and ignorant minds, and then there's the taught minds. There's the putting off the old, there's the putting on the new. There's the deceit, and there's the truth. There's the corrupted person, there's the new creation. There's the callous and impure heart, and then there's the righteous and holy heart. There are those who are separated from God, and there are those created to be like God. So here we have these two comparisons. And Paul has a reason for these two comparisons. He's saying to his readers, listen, up to this point, I've, I've shown you who you are, and I've, I've told you, and I, I've, I've, I've encouraged you, or said commanded you, to walk in a manner that is worthy of recalling, calling. And that, that whole like, 1 through 16 of chapter 4 is just this idea of, of unity and how that is fleshed out. And Paul is saying here, listen, I've shown you who you are in Christ. You are his workmanship. You are his church. But not only that, you have been blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You have had the gospel revealed by the Spirit of God to you so that you can grow up in Christ, but now, based on those realities, Paul is calling the Ephesians, uh, Ephesian believers, to live their lives, like I said, in a way that matches their calling. In other words, they need to choose how they're going to live. It's one thing to say, this is who you are. It's another thing to say, now how are you going to live based on who you are? Because what he's about to say, all right, chapter four twenty-five and on, cannot be realized unless you're willing to come to terms with what he's saying here. The reality is, friends, there are too many people that identify themselves as Christians who walk into church as Christians are in, into the context of a church Sunday after Sunday, but whose lives do not reflect the Christianity that they identify themselves with. Why is that? Why is there a disconnect between who you are and how you are living? And Paul's saying that shouldn't be. So if you want to have a marriage that is Christ like, you've got to come down in the right way on this passage. If you want to raise your kids in a way that honors God, you have to come down in a right way on this passage. What is going to be the basis of how you live? Are you going to live like the Gentiles? Or are you going to live like a follower of Christ? Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that he's he's speaking like this and he's revealing this kind of stuff to a church. It's not a letter to unbelievers. This is a letter to the church. Chapter 2, those sections, he's talking about this is what you were, and this is what you've become. But now, having talked about walking, he says, now listen, don't walk like the Gentiles. Don't live your life like the Gentiles. That's not who you are. That is not how Christ made himself known to you. So, so Paul is pushing back from his, from his table and he's thinking through the importance of what he has yet to say. And he's saying, you know what? I've got I've to kind of draw a line in the sand, so to speak, and say, before I go any further, you have to walk through the gauntlet of this text and come out saying, this is how I'm going to live. I'm either going to live a life that reflects the world, or I'm going to live a life that reflects Christ. And so, friends, becoming a believer, and living as a child of God is a call to radical living. And it's radical living that is contrary to the world in which we live. Now, that doesn't just mean the kind of clothes you wear. It doesn't mean the kind of cars you have. We're talking about inward character that is fleshed and shaped by the word of God. That is what he's calling us to here. Paul's already identified this former deadness and alienation from God, but here he gives us this fuller picture of a pagan lifestyle to warn the Christians not to revert back, but to press on to new life in Christ in a full way. Now you think about some other letters that Paul wrote. In Galatians, what happened there? Paul is addressing some people who now have embraced more judaistic religion as opposed to the freedom that we have in christ and so they've reverted back to old ways and here once again he's warning because he wants his readers to understand what it means to be in christ and to live a life that is in christ practically so he's setting them up and he's he's driving it home and he's he's emphasizing the the importance of this this question How are you going to live? Are you going to live like a sinner or are you going to live like a saint? Not by a saint meaning imperfection, but as a follower of Christ. The arena of battle then is not the arena of behavior. The arena of battle here is the arena of the mind. Because he talks here about the feudal mind of the Gentiles and he talks about the renewed mind of the child of God. And so it's important for us to understand here that this, this area of real attention is the mind because unbelievers and Christians think differently. And because they think differently, they act differently. Continue to think like an unbeliever and you will produce ungodly fruit. Continue to think like a believer and you will begin to produce. Godly fruit, and so it's incredibly important. That's why verse 17, Paul says this. Now this I say and testify, what? In the Lord. He's saying this is really important, and I'm speaking with the authority of Christ here. This is really important for us to grasp, okay? Now, having laid out this kind of backdrop and the foundation and the direction of where he's going, let's take each of these sections one at a time. What I'm calling then the first one is this, the danger of a futile mind the danger of a futile or a futile mind in other words living like a sinner look at verse 17 again now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as gentiles do in the futility of their minds what does it mean futility of the mind the idea of futility is emptiness without aim void of substance so it describes the kind of thinking that Fails to produce the desired results. It never succeeds. It pictures a man who is consumed with the pursuit of goals that are purely selfish, the accumulation of stuff that ultimately is temporary, the finding of satisfaction in what is intrinsically deceptive or disappointing. You know what it's like? It's like, you know, you, you see that, that advert, or you see that little flyer, it's like, oh man, I've been wanting that. And it's like, and so now your whole world is about getting that, maybe getting the best price, and you spend all your time spinning your wheels to get what you want, and you finally go out and you spend it and you get it, and you're like, meh. You know, I just spent all this time being consumed with this, and it just isn't as satisfying as it seemed it would be if I had it that's because so often we function in the futility of our mind. We're functioning not in ways that honor God and saying, is this something that's going to be beneficial to my family that's going to honor God? It's really a selfish desire that I want to satisfy by getting this. And I finally get it. It's like, oh, okay, it was good for a day or two, right? And what about those kids at Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden it's like toys are in the closet and where are they? And and, and life is like that, friends. We pursue these things. that just seem like they're going to bring satisfaction, but they're empty. And that's because we've been pursuing them in futility. So the unbeliever plans and resolves everything on the basis of his own thinking. Therefore, he becomes his own ultimate authority, and he follows his own ultimate authority um, to its ultimate outcome, emptiness, aimlessness, meaninglessness, And it's it's a self-centered emptiness that is really characteristic of this age. I want you to think a little bit about this with me. This is what Solomon talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes. He goes through all sorts of different things that man says will satisfy. Pleasure, wealth, popularity, sensuality, all sorts of different things. But in the end, it's vanity and a striving after the wind, it's emptiness. So this is not a new message. This is a message that, is, that has been true throughout uh, God's creation. So the expression in the futility of their minds is the overall general condition of their hearts. Now the question is, how do they get there? What does this passage say? i want to divide it in this way. First of all, I want to talk about the origin of futility. Where does it come from? And we're going to read verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of Of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. What we're going to do is we're going to work our way backwards because these kind of flow out of one another. And the first thing I want you to see here is hard heartedness. There are hard hearts. Now, literally, this idea of hardness is from a Greek word, poros, which originally meant this a stone harder than marble. And so the picture here is this. In our vernacular, we'd say, this person has a heart of what? Stone. I mean, you just can't break it. You can't penetrate it. So it is this this very word that is used to describe the, the, the religious leader's response to Jesus healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Their hearts were hard, and they wanted to kill him. They weren't able to see the the wonder and the beauty of what Jesus was doing. Their hearts were so hard. It's like, bing, okay? So this hardness of heart describes the inability and unwillingness to respond to God's truth. Now, our passage here today is directly parallel to Romans chapter one, verses 18 and following. And you may want to flip over there But our passage is is basically Romans 1, 18 through the end in condensed form, okay? And we'll show you that just kind of as we go through it. But I'm gonna read Romans 1, 18 through verse 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, it's there It's there to see. The evidence is there. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We just step back and say, this is what God is saying through Paul here. God has revealed himself through nature. He's put himself on display. You could even say that God has revealed himself through the conscience of man. You go around this world, you're going to find in in kind of obscure villages somewhere, you're going to find people who also believe that murder is wrong and treating kids in an abusive way is wrong. There's some things that are written on the heart by God. Okay? These things are part of God's general revelation of himself. His... He is on display. That's saying they know about him. They have, they, have, they have recognized his handiwork. Let's continue reading verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. So you have this hardness of heart that ends up then with this futile thinking. Stone cold hearts. Then there's the next word we find from our passage, and that's ignorance. Ignorance. Going back now to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So this hard-heartedness then produces then also an ignorance. Now it's not saying that these people are simpletons. Okay, Not saying that they are somehow um, You know, savages with simplistic ideas. He's speaking to the church in the city of Ephesus. It's a Greek city. All right? And and I would say, still in the prime of Hellenistic culture that was a very, very brilliant thinking culture. So when he's talking about ignorance here, he's not identifying them as being, you know, ignoramuses. He's simply saying they do not have the capacity to know about God. They're ignorant. He's still on display, both in the universe, like I said, and in their conscience, but, but in their intellectual brilliance, they suppress those realities and prove themselves to be ignorant. Now again, if we were to go back to, um, go back to Romans, what, what do we find there? Go back to Romans, if you would. And just just notice what it says there. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They deliberately press down hard so that the truth cannot rise up. They deliberately try and do all they can to, to mask it, to hide it, to cover it up. They do not want to be fed by what is true. That is they are because they are ignorant. The third word here, an idea, is alienation from the life of God. Alienation from the life of God. When man is alienated from God, he is heading for eternal death. One of the definitions of death is separation from God. That's eternal death. And that is how Paul described the Ephesian church before their conversion. Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That is right before he says, but God, and in that but God passage, he says, I breathe life into you. I made you alive. And, and as a result, they have no religious, or sorry, no relationship with God because they're alienated from God. They're strangers still. And then the fourth point here then ultimately is that they are in spiritual darkness. The hardness of their hearts led to ignorance and an alienation from God, and now we see that their mindset has been so drastically affected that they have no capacity for spiritual truth. Okay. Now this is, this is hard stuff, isn't it, right? I mean, it's not, I don't, I'm not jumping around, isn't it great? Oh, I have spiritual darkness, ooh, yeah, I mean, no. This is, this is hard stuff because this reveals the nature of man without God. And friends, this is not a temporary situation for them. They are totally blind to the truth. Again, let me remind you, Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what does the book of Psalms say? The fool is set in his heart or his mind what? There is no God. Okay. Now friends, this is, this is where this futile mind comes from. Hardness of heart that just begins to overflow into ignorance and alienation and then just the inability to have any comprehension of spiritual truth. Just wanting to suppress it all the time. Now consider this. Within the framework of their society, talking about the Gentiles here, their behavior would have been quite normal and acceptable. We're not talking about, you know, everyone's an axe murderer. We're just talking about people who are ungodly, but living their lives, living, I would say, perceived normal lives. And so in the same way, as we turn to this 21st century Society now dictates its own moral norms. Usually by consensus opinion. We call that a poll. Right? Well, what do you think? Well, let's have a let's have a discussion. Let's dialogue on it. Usually, when people want to dialogue, it, it doesn't come out a way that would honor God. It usually goes a way that It's an opportunity to kind of take us away from what is true. And consensus opinion then becomes the standard by which we measure things. So, for example, how does the world feel about, I'm just going to list the things that Paul brings up next, the covenant of marriage. How does the world view that? What about adultery? What about the the proper discipline of children? Or how to be a good and faithful employer or employee? How does the world view that? What about lying and stealing and anger and filthy language? How does the world view that? You say, wow, I mean, the Bible actually talks about some of those things. Well, if you hang with me in Ephesians, you'll find out that it does. And it's going to frame it in such a way that Paul is going to say, listen, this is, this is where the world is coming from. But this is how God wants you now to live your life in such a way that it reflects who you are in Christ. So that the new sin, friends, today is this. To be in opposition to the cultural norms. That is the cultural sin today. To be politically incorrect. To value honesty and integrity in all situations. To think differently about what the world holds dear. That's the ultimate Sin And Paul describes it this way in Romans 12 two, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the first part says do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed into the world's mold. The world is trying to squeeze people to think and behave like it wants you to think and behave. So that it can be free in its conscience to act and behave in ways that it wants to. And if you don't come along, if you don't follow suit, then you're the bad guy. Okay, It's amazing how clear and apical and relevant scripture is just to say this is what's going on. Okay, Now, uh, let's, we've looked at the origin, but let's think now about the outcome. The outcome of futility. What is the result? What is the fruit? Verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the first thing is this. They're callous, which means they're beyond feeling. You know what it's like to have a callous, right? Sometimes it's good to have a callous so that you can not feel. If you play the guitar or the violin, it's good to have calluses. If you don't have callous, then it's like, ah, ooh, eh, yeah, you know, it really hurts, but if you have calluses, then you can move freely. The, the point here, though, is their hearts are callous. They do not feel in spiritual ways what God says. There's no pain. When God's word is preached and it's, it's confronting their sin, it's just like it goes, bing. It's like, well, I didn't feel anything. But God is speaking to them, but they're not willing to listen. Their hearts are calloused. They're totally insensitive to God. But insensitivity in one direction leads to sensuality in another. And just like in in, in Romans where they have three slippery slope descriptions where it says God gave them up in verse 24 to impurity. God gave them up to dishonoring passions or dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. So here Paul reveals that they have given themselves up to sensuality. It's one of the differences here between this passage and Romans. Romans, God is giving them up. In this passage, they have come to the place where they're giving themselves up. This is what they want to do. They're getting what they want. And friends, let me just say this. If you get what you want, you may not like it. And it will have rippling effects. And you may regret it the rest of your life. Not only are they callous, but they are greedy for impurity. (laughs) Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Can you just imagine that, walking around, it's like, oh, I want to do that. Oh, I want to do that. Ah, oh, how can I do that? You know, all kinds of evil, sinful things. Just, they've gotten to the place where they're so out of touch with God that they want to pursue every kind of satisfaction that the world offers them. They're greedy for it. Now, friends, this has been a warning given to shake the believers into the seriousness of what Paul is calling them to It's a call to recognize that their belief and behavior go hand in hand. That they can still be, even though they're God's children, be affected by the futility of the Gentiles and become insensitive to God. And they can still, even though they're God's children, begin to pursue their own selfish desires. And he's saying, look out, hold it, warning, flashing. Because When their minds are darkened, they cannot see the real problem. All they can see are the symptoms. And friends, today we have people running around trying to whack-a-mole all the symptoms of life and not even aware of what the core issues are. And Paul is getting ready to unveil the core issues, not just to present symptoms that are somewhat... um, superficial, of course. So man's problem isn't his low self-esteem or his unrealized potential or his environment or his overprotective parents. No, man's problem is his unwillingness to recognize and to acknowledge his sinful condition, his alienation, and his blindness before God. All coming out of the book of Ephesians here. No, God has called us to something greater. So this, is, this is not a, come over here, I just want to beat you over the head with this stuff. This is who you are. You know, and he's just beaten you the whole time. That's not the point here. But without an honest assessment of the condition of mankind, the beauty of what God has done for us does not shine as bright as it could. To say that we were dead and now we are alive may be so normal to you because you've heard it so many times that you've lost the power and the beauty of it but if you're a child of God you are no longer dead you're alive you are his workmanship he's working on you now you're once alienated a stranger but God through Christ has brought you into the family of God you've been reconciled to him You were once walking in the futility of your mind, but now because of Christ, you can live your life in such a way that day by day, your mind is being renewed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit's working through all that, helping you to grow, to become like Jesus Christ. Friends, that is something to celebrate. So if you're like, man, this is just so harsh, talking about all this stuff, understand the reason for that is there so that we can see what's coming next. Verse 20, we're talking here now about the pursuit of a renewed mind. This is what God has called his children to. Not to be derailed by a futile mind, but to be pursuing this renewed mind. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. That's not how you came to know him. Isn't it interesting? It says that's not the way you learned Christ, not learned about, learned Christ. There's a difference between you know, me and my wife, me learning my wife and my, my learning about my wife. I can learn about my wife. I can ask you, what do you think about my wife? Well, you know, she's kind of pretty. I'd say, yes, yeah, she is. Okay. You know, she's smart. Yes, yeah, she is. Okay. Um, Rod, you're really lucky to have her? Yes, I am. Okay. Anything more you want me to say, honey? (laughs) While while I'm at it, I just, you know. But, you know, there's a difference between hearing it from other people and spending time with her and learning her. And so this idea of learning Christ means that, that we have we've gotten to the place where we're not just learning about him. We, we have actually experienced him. We are, we are integrated personally in our relationship with him. There's something intimate that's going on. So there's these three words that are used in verse 20. Learned, heard, and taught. Isn't it interesting how he says this? But that is not the way you learn Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth then is in Jesus. So this first word then is learn. This first word is learn. And this is the only place in scripture where we're told to learn Christ. John 17.3 says this, and this is eternal life that that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So as I mentioned, it's this personal relationship. The second word is the word heard. So this this idea of hearing then is a hearing that further instructs you about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in you and through you and for you. And it really refers to that initial call. You heard the call, you heard the gospel. And probably if we went around this room, you, you, we could say, you know, I remember, that, I remember that moment when I heard that gospel kind of in a fresh way. It was that penetrating hearing. I heard about my sinfulness. I heard about the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, dying in my place, taking upon him my sin, so that, so that now that through him I can have this this reconciliation with God, that is part of his calling that we hear. And so he's talking about that here. Then we are taught. We're taught, and the idea is that we're building upon then that that beginning relationship with Christ, and it's this ongoing learning more about him. And this is the pattern of the early church, and it is still the pattern of the church today, that we are teaching one another about who Christ is. And this goes back then to our text from last week, chapter 7 through 16, where the emphasis there was we need word ministry gifts in order to feed the flock. Again, we need to be teaching. So, one of the things that's that's been lost by and large in much of the church today is an emphasis on education. And By that, I do not mean English and math. There's been much more of a, I might want to say, a mystical approach to what it means to walk with Christ, as opposed to, here's the word of God, learn it, love it, study it, grow in it, as opposed to, I have the word of God, let me see what God says, Hmm. oh, wow, no, this is why we're going to Bolivia, because this is the problem, when you do that, you end up with a superficial Christianity that doesn't have any depth at all. And the church needs to be growing by virtue of learning what God says in his word so that they can apply it. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the apostle Paul is is preaching to all those people there gathered on the day of Pentecost. Listen how how he kind of finishes things up. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know... For certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he's saying that after He has revealed Christ, reveal Christ, reveal Christ, reveal Christ, reveal Christ. The point is, learning, being taught is the basis of our knowledge of who Jesus is. Now, Paul gave these, this long exposition and ended up with that, that statement. Now, the reason there's so much dropout in the church, I would say, is because people are not learning Christ. They don't have a grasp of what Scripture says. They say, I've read the Bible, but the question is, you know, do you know the Bible that you've read? You know what it's like to read a, read a few pages, especially when you're in college. Got to read this textbook. I did my reading. Do you remember it? I have no idea what it says. You know, we don't want to approach the Word of God that way just so I can get my few chapters in, right? We wanna wanna interact with it. What would it be like if your wife wrote you a note and you read it, and she said, oh, did you like it? It's like, yeah, it was great. What did you like most about it? Um, I don't know. (laughs) The color, Um, (laughs) you know? No, it's the content that's communicating, right? So we're paying attention. We're learning what it says. Again, why are we going to Bolivia? So we can teach pastors and Christian workers to understand how to approach the word of God, to see what is there, so that we can take it and disseminate it to the body of Christ. Okay? The problem is so often we become more emotional and sentimental in our handling of the word of God as opposed to seeing that there's a need for us to learn it and to grow in it. So it must be remembered... That biblical knowledge um, that's being talked about here is far more than simply intellectual assent. It's a whole life of obedience um, to Christ. And that's only possible, friends, by God's grace. So there's this idea then of, of instruction that I'm calling learning, hearing, and teaching. Secondly, there's this way of baptism, this way of baptism. This, this next passage, probably you, you've Heard me speak on it before, and if you've been in classes, this is a, a classic passage talking about progressive sanctification, and that simply means how do, I, how do I now walk in this new relationship that I have with Christ until he comes again, or I die and, and I go to heaven. So there's a picture here, and this is a, it's a picture of baptism. Let's read it. Verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Let me just give you the visual here. So if I'm getting ready to go through the ceremony of baptism, I am figuratively here taking off all these old dirty clothes, right? And I'm stepping into the waters, I'm being fully immersed, the idea there is cleansing And when I get out the other side, I don't put on my old dirty clothes. I'm putting on new, clean clothes. That's the picture that's going on here. So, the taking off of these dirty clothes and entering into this this waters of baptism is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross by dying for my sin, paying for my sin. And he's taken my sin, and scripture says he's cast it as far as the east is from the west. He no longer holds it against me. He chooses to no longer remember it and hold it against my account. And instead of my sin being on my account, it says, you know, paid or, you know, Jesus Christ has accomplished that on the cross for you. The reality, though, is I go through the waters of baptism, I enter my my new Christian life. Now I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. That when God looks down at me, He doesn't look down necessarily at me independent of Christ he looks down at me through Christ that's why I am in Christ okay it's really important to see that okay now so there is this picture of of new birth this picture of salvation that is taking place there and we see that all throughout um, uh, Ephesians right so we're putting off the old self the deadness the alienation the futile mind we're renewed in our mind, and what's happening there is that this regeneration, when we've been made alive, when we've been reconciled, we have this new awareness of, of what is going on because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We now understand scripture in, in ways that we couldn't before, and we're putting on this new man. We are now adopted as sons. We're his workmanship. We are his church. And all these things have a purpose. His workmanship was good works. The church was to make known the wisdom of God. But this is also a pattern now that he gives us for sanctification. Because the reality is, even though I am now um, no longer responsible eternally for my sin because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, here's what happens, right? Here I am, unbeliever, I lie. Go through this whole life change, guess what happens here? Do I still lie? It's paid for, but I, I drag my sinful habits into my Christian walk. So now, practically speaking, what I have to do as I'm growing to be like Christ is I'm learning by virtue of God, revealing things in my life, and I'm putting them off, I'm being renewed in my thinking, and I'm putting on Christ. I'm putting on attributes that would be reflective of Christ at work in my life. That's called progressive sanctification. That's called growing in Christ, okay? So what he's he's revealing for us here is this completely different perspective of life. This putting off, this putting on, but there's this being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and that, friends, that comes from opening up God's word, from spending time in God's word, from talking about it, from sitting under preaching, listening to good, faithful uh, teaching or, or, or preaching that may be on the radio or, or there, you, you know, just, just allowing the word of God to fashion and to shape you. That is the means by which these things take place. And finally, we're gonna say this. Not only was there the way of instruction, the way of baptism, there's also the, the, the way now of this new creation, The ultimate result then is this being like Christ. Now, we're always gonna fall short until we're standing with him in glory, but the goal is to pursue being like Christ, right? So the counsel that Paul is is giving here as he continues through this letter is to, to think and act like Christ. The fact that we're new Christians means that we're with Christ seated in the heavenly places, that we're in Christ, that we are to be like Christ. These are all expressions that come out of the, the Ephesian letter. You've all heard of St. Patrick. In the fifth century, he wrote these, this down kind of as a, as a poem or it's even put to a song. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. And and the point here is this, that we're living daily with an awareness that we are in Jesus Christ and he is at work in us. And so we need to be doing what what we should be doing, so to speak, so that we can be growing in maturity, being like Jesus Christ. As it said earlier, the fullness of Christ. And that's verse 15 or 16 of the same chapter. So Jesus is not only our savior, he's also our sacrifice. He's not only the author of this new work, but get this, he's also the model. So we who are redeemed and made new should increasingly exhibit by grace, by his strength, the godlike characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I want to end with four things. Just give me a couple more minutes, and we will be done. Of course, that means another half an hour, right? You know that. Um, I think these, these flow out, I think, naturally, and I just want us to ponder them and think about them and, 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 and chew on them somewhat, okay? Number one, this is a call to change our thinking. Change in behavior, friends, is insufficient. And that ripples down through marriage, it ripples down through parenting, it ripples down through all sorts of things. All right, you know, when does a murderer no longer a murderer? Guy's standing in the witness stand and he says, Judge, I'm not murdering right now. All right? Is he still a murderer? Well, he's not murdering it. So the point is, when is, someone, when is someone stealing no longer a thief? And now, the point is this. The issue isn't the behavior. The issue is the thinking that results in the behavior. If you just simply stop the behavior, that doesn't mean, okay, it's all done now. And it's so easy just to rest at the behavior level. I'm just thinking in parenting. is not it's just stop doing that, right? But... We really want to get to the thinking level. Secondly, this is a call to honest self-evaluation. The new self shines brighter when set in the context of life before Christ. It's helpful for us to evaluate ourselves based on the descriptions of the ungodly because we so easily drift that way. And we can see ourselves then drifting that way and say, ah, why would I want to pursue that when I have this? Third thing, this is a call to purposeful living. All right? Following Christ is not just some kind of an osmosis growth in Christ. It's purposeful. To put off and to put on and be renewed in the spirit of your mind takes Work. That's why Paul says in the book of Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling." He's not talking about your initial salvation. He's talking about this progressive salva- sanctification, this salvation that he now has called you to to live in, in honor to God. It, it takes work, okay? It's not an ignorant pursuit, but one that requires a lifelong, ongoing learning, hearing, and teaching. And the last thing is this. It's a call to decide how you're going to live. Are you going to live like a sinner? Or are you going to live like a saint? Are you going to be fashioned and shaped by the Gentiles and what they think and what they believe is important? Or are you going to be fashioned and shaped by what Christ says is important? And, friends, we're all living there. In all these areas, we battle. These are all areas that we struggle with, and we've got to fight in our spirit to say, Lord, I I want to honor you. Lord, we thank you for today, for this passage of scripture. Sometimes, Lord, it's hard to be exposed by what your word says about our character, about our hearts, about our minds, our thinking. But, Lord, there's a There's a a way in which you want us to see ourselves in light of that, Lord. You you give us the great joy and privilege of seeing that we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. That you are at work in us and that that we're still living in this this arena where there is plenty of ungodliness, but there is hope and there is is ability to press on and to be what you want us to be. Lord, there's a recognition that there's, there's a difficulty in doing that, and yet, Lord, at the same time, um, there is a possibility to do that for your glories. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom. We ask, Lord, for, for guidance. And, but, Lord, most of all right now, we, we ask that our hearts would be softened to hear you, to respond to you, and to be molded and shaped by you. I wondered this morning, wonder if there's anything that God has been doing in your life through this passage. Maybe maybe right now in this this quiet moment, you need to talk with him and say, God, forgive me of of my sinfulness. Forgive me of that attitude. Forgive me of my coldness. Forgive me of, Lord, just playing the games. And Lord, help me now to, 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 to set my weather vane in a direction, Lord, that would be to honor you with my life and, and to do what Paul wants his readers to do so that I can continue living and learning how to, how to be like your son Jesus Christ in all these different areas of my life. I just want you to contemplate that. If there's something like that going on in you, talk to him right now. And I wonder if maybe today you're saying, you know, I I am not a follower of Christ. But God is, God is speaking to me. God is penetrating my heart right now. And I, I want to talk further about that. I just, I want to I pray for you. Lord, I, I don't know what's going on in the hearts of people, but I just, just believe your word is always at work. And I trust, Lord, that you are at work in the hearts of your people. But Lord, even in the hearts of people who are fighting you, Lord, would you you allow your Holy Spirit to break through the hardness and, Lord, to to draw that person, Lord, into your family through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We ask, Lord, for, for you to accomplish your purposes through your word in the hearts of people. And we celebrate, Lord, because you are the one that does it. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's sing together.